1: Hi, I'm Adasa Stein. I'm a fourth year medical student at SUNY Downstate. I serve on the Joma Teen Health Committee and I'm an interviewer for the Joma Specialty Spotlight podcast. The Specialty Spotlight podcasts are geared towards pre med and medical students interested in learning about different medical specialties. Today I will be interviewing Dr. Hannah Weinstock Neuberger. Dr. Hannah Weinstock Neuberger is a medical oncologist and hematologist who has been a genitourinary oncology team leader at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration since 2017. She is a graduate of Base Siakob, Toronto, and BJJ, and then graduated with high distinction from the University of Toronto before completing her M.D. at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. After her training, she practiced thoracic and genitourinary oncology at the University of Maryland Medical Center and at the Baltimore VA Medical Center, where she remains on staff. Her original oncology research research has been published in peer-reviewed journals such as the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Journal of Urology, and Clinical Cancer Research, and she has presented at national meetings, including oral presentations at ASCO, ASCO Ju Symposium, and AACR and ASTR workshops. She worked as the former track leader of ASCO's. GU Oncology Kidney and Bladder Cancer Educational Track, was on the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network Annual Meeting Planning Committee, and is an FDA observer on the National Cancer Institute Scientific Steering Committee in Genitourinary Oncology. She is also on the DEI DEI Committee of the ACGME and was founding co-vice president of JOMA, and is proud to serve on the Executive Leadership Board of the Baltimore JCC. She lives in Baltimore with her husband and children and is an avid, albeit slow runner, and a devoted coffee drinker. Hi, Dr. Newberger. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. <laughs> um, so our first question, why did you choose a career in medicine and what characteristics make one a good fit for a career in medicine?
2: Yes, great question. And I'm really just so honored to be here. This is such a great uh, podcast series. So why did I choose a career in medicine? Um, As you might have heard from my bio, I started out in the Basiaco world and went to BJJ and never really thought of a career in anything other than teaching, actually. That was really um, encouraged um, in my community. And Actually, going to college or university wasn't even something on my radar. It was something I always wanted to do. I loved school. I loved to learn. I loved to learn about new things and new ideas. But it just was not something that I saw myself doing. And to give you a little bit of background, my my mother and my grandmother are both um, very uh, well known principals and very involved in Chabanos or um, in Jewish women's education or girls' education. My grandmother was Reverend Sinsoloveitchik from Beis of Muncie. My mother was the principal of Eitz Chaim um, Toronto. So they were both so involved in education that really that was where I kind of saw my own destiny. And so when I came back from seminary, I dived right into teaching. I taught for two years. I taught elementary school, I taught high school. And I quickly realized that although it was a great job, it wasn't necessarily where I saw my calling. And I had something inside me that just really, really wanted to learn in a different way than I had before. I wanted to explore, I wanted to find out new ideas. And at that point, um, my mother, ha- it was uh, when my grandmother was um, uh, sort of deciding what to do next with Fais Yakov. Um, and my my mother spoke to Zelig Epstein, um, Zetzal, and brought the topic of college up for me uh, as an aside. And she's like, you know, my daughter really wants to go to college. And he said, well, what's the problem? really what he said and my mother said well what about shidduchim at that point that was a very big concern in in my mind and all of our minds because what you know where where i come from this was really not something that was so done and he said hashem makes shidduchim you know god makes shidduchim don't worry about that you do you know you, you do what is best for your daughter so with that um in my back pocket I enrolled at the University of Toronto, and once I had permission to be there, you know, medicine was just a calling. I, I did have other career options that I briefly explored. I, I was thinking about architecture. I was thinking about being an editor because I love writing and I love um, drawing and you know, I did have different interests for a while. I was thinking about becoming a sociologist because I took intro to sociology. Like I, I, once I started university, I really felt like the world was my oyster. But ultimately, the combination of being able to help people in a very meaningful way and combine that with uh, scientific pursuit and um, intellectual endeavors made medicine seem like uh, the best fit for me. So it was a bit of an evolution. I'm not one of these people who grew up wanting to be a doctor or or even thinking that was possible. But once I had um, sort of that switch where college became something that was um, doable for me, I really, I just, I felt like a kid in a candy store. And I, I felt like the whole world was open for me. And, um, you know, medicine was really somewhere where I, I felt um, I could use my talents and my abilities and my uh, love of learning in, in the best way possible. So that was my, that was kind of my story.
1: I, I love uh, that. That's really, really fascinating. And I love how you pursued something that was like mentally stimulating and uh, really, was your passion, but also um, stayed within the confines of the religious community that you identify with. Um, you were able to join those two. I think that's awesome.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate that. And you know we' will we'll, we'll probably get to Joma a little bit later, but yeah, your comments about keeping within the confines of the community and and um, giving back to the community, I really do find, you know in 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 practice, when I actually started practicing, I, I really had very little contact with the Orthodox Jewish community. and you know, I, I did feel like I was giving back, but not necessarily specifically to the community. and that's why um, you know JoMA's um, allowed me to pay it forward to women who are in my position, um, who are looking um, for different career options and for advice and, and for a community. And so that's been a really nice piece of it, as well. And yeah. I think you asked me about the characteristics uh, for uh, you know a, a good career in medicine and and what might make that a good fit for someone. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, everybody's going to think about that uh, through their own lens and through their own experiences. But for me, I have, an intellectual curiosity. I love learning. I love learning new things. I love new challenges. I, you know, every day at work, I learn something new and I'm able to use my mind and wrap my head around problems that weren't there yesterday. And I find that thrilling. I love going to work. I love what I do. And I always say that if I won the lottery, you know, tomorrow and, and I just had all the money I could ever use in my life, I would go back to work the next day. Like it's just, it's just a passion and a drive. And I think if you have that in you, and if you do, you know who you are, this just love of learning and love of making an impact in the world, using your mind and your thinking, then medicine is really a great career for you. Um, you know, I think someone who enjoyed school and enjoyed learning um, is a good fit for medicine because there's a lot of that. And um, yeah, I think sort of those, the combination of those things, the the love of learning and love of investigation and, and of um, always learning about new things. But combined with, uh, you know, the, wanting to help people and being very dedicated and and being okay with giving up your time for that sort of thing and a lot of your time for those endeavors, you know that that's definitely a crucial piece of it. And also a team player. You know, medicine, wherever you end up, is almost always a team sport. You know, you're going to have to work with other colleagues. Um, and many different people along the way, and everybody's going to be a part of the team. And if if you like that kind of collaboration and environment, then, then medicine is definitely a good fit for you too.
1: Yeah. I think those, you know, the three things that the passion, the curiosity and the team player that really um, is a great, a great summary of what makes a good doctor. I don't know if this is an exact statistic, <laughs> um, but I heard recently, that medical knowledge, like something like doubles every three months. Um, Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. But this, this is something someone had told me recently. And, um, but I guess like the idea of being that um, there's so much to learn in medicine and it's, it doesn't stop after you finish medical school or residency. It's, it's a constant learning process. So um, if you have that curiosity and you enjoy learning new things, then um, I think, that is a huge part of being um, a good a good doctor and clinician. Why did you decide to go into the field of oncology?
2: That's a great question. I, if you're ready for another story, I'll tell you. I'll tell you my story.
1: Yeah. So, please.
2: okay, great. So, I was um, in that sort of no man's land where I had finished. Uh, or, or I knew I wasn't going to be teaching for the rest of my life, but I hadn't started um, University of Toronto. And I knew that to apply to medical school, you needed a really standout CV. And at that point, my CV was not stand out because it had very little on it to do with medicine. So I had a family friend who had a friend who was an Ashkenazi Jewish woman with breast cancer, and she had the most amazing oncologist who had uh, started doing a study of Ashkenazi Jewish women with um, BRCA mutations and, uh, you know, enhanced screening uh, for, for recurrences. And she's like, Hannah, this woman is amazing. And, and she's a religious woman. Why don't you call her? I had never heard of her, even though we were in the same community. And I cold called her and she didn't know who I was. And she picked up the phone and I said, could I come do research with you? And, she agreed. Totally sight unseen. It was it was a pure chesed on her part and really something that I've tried to pay forward since then. But, you know, she was an oncologist and that was the first exposure that I really had to a firm woman in medicine. But it was very impactful for me because I saw that she was combining you know uh, helping her patients and they adored her she's she's a wonderful wonderful person her name is dr ellen warner in, in toronto she's just caring and compassionate and amazing but she's also brilliant and she was doing research that was impacting you know the broader field of oncology in a very very major way and suddenly i was like this is so cool cuz you know what what do you know about being a doctor when you're growing up you know about your pediatrician you know about your general physician, but the added layer of doing research and specializing was something new to me. And that really spoke to me. And even though during medical school I did look at other fields of onco- of of medicine, I kept coming back to that experience that I had. I kept actually physically coming back. I would go to Toronto for summers and do more research with Ellen. And I kept, you know, writing it up and publishing it and and presenting it at ASCO, which is our big oncology conference. And I never found that passion in any other field. And I would say that figuring out which field of medicine is is for you is really like um, like a shoulda, like you know like a match. And you have to know yourself. So oncology spoke to me in a lot of ways and and played up my strengths but you know also accounted for some of my weaknesses. So I'll tell you my weaknesses. I'm not a great proceduralist. I, I don't love, um, you know, procedure, surgery, et cetera. I'm not a very good diagnostician. If, if someone comes to me with 10 things wrong with them and all their tests or their labs and imaging is normal, I, I don't know what to do next. I find that very challenging. Some people are very talented at that. In oncology, people come to you with a diagnosis. Um, I'm not so good at you know, being in an emergency room and thinking on my feet when things are, uh, you know, all happening at once, um, oncology is a much more. The pace is very different. The way you think about your patients very different. It's very longitudinal care. There's a lot of time to you know discuss the problem at tumor board and, and come up with a solution. So it really spoke to my strengths in that way, um, and. You know, it, it's it's a very good match for my personality, and you know the patients are amazing. Like, really, you know, I, I'm no longer seeing patients right now, but when I did, the patients bring you to work every day. Um, you know, it's it's a very difficult time in people's lives, and um, just the ability to be part of that conversation and to help people, and in many many instances, to cure people or to lengthen their lives, um, it's, it's really remarkable. And the families and all of that is just, it comes to the fore in oncology. And the other thing is that your colleagues who go into oncology with you are also, a, you know, a, almost exclusively a, a really, really nice group of people, the doctors, the nurses, the, the, um, your, your front desk staff, like they know what they're um, what kind of environment they're stepping into when they work in a cancer center. And it tends to be a certain type of person. And, you know, when you're going to be working with people day in, day out for years, that becomes a really big factor. So I love the people I work with. I always have in every setting in oncology. That's been a really um, something that I found um, in common in every work setting um, when you're dealing with with cancer patients. So that that's a very big factor for me as well.
1: Well, um, I really admire your self-awareness um in terms of like, you know, you you realizing what what are your strengths. Um, I think that's like a good message also for I guess the people listening that um like you know, we all bring something different to the table. And um your medical school class, um, we you all bring different strengths to the table. And that's okay, that's good. <laughs> Uh, and I, I do, I do think it's interesting to look back um, at my at my first year. Now that I know where everybody in my class, I'm a fourth year now, so I know um, which specialties everyone in my class chose. Um, yeah. And it's like, yeah, that that makes sense. That was a good shidduch. I do see like their their strengths worked for this field, their personality worked for this field. And I think for me as well, I found radiology. I absolutely love it and it was like when i found it i was like wow i found i found my match <laughs> this is me so i'm so um,
2: happy for you
1: yeah so um so it's exactly what you're saying like you it has to play on your strengths and also something that you find interesting and you see yourself doing for the rest of your I- career
2: I will say the caveat is that when you're in third year, you need to pretend that every single rotation <laughs> is like your dream rotation, um, because nobody wants to hear, "Well, I'm doing um, internal medicine, but really, you know, really, I don't want to be here." I mean, you really need to take those two months and and make it your um, <laughs> overriding passion for the moment, whether or not that's true, because that's really the only way you're going to learn. And um, really makes for the best learning environment for everybody. But you know, after that, you can definitely de-differentiate and figure out what's what works for you the best.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely do appreciate the caveat. And there is something really to learn on every rotation. Um, and if you show the enthusiasm, people will respond, um, you know, enthusiastically teaching you. So for sure. Um, all right. So uh, our next question. Can you walk us through a typical day for you with your various clinical, academic and administrative responsibilities?
2: Yeah, great question. I would say that no two days are the same, but many days are a combination of you know reviewing protocols for studies that are ongoing um, or that are starting and um, that we have to uh, provide input on um, in terms of trial design, in terms of safety precautions for patients. Um, a lot of times I'll have a meeting or two with a drug company discussing their clinical trials. Uh, you know, Very often they'll be asking our advice on how to run their cancer clinical trials in, in a way um, that will best provide the answers that they're looking for I also do a lot of uh, workshop planning, mini symposium planning. So, you know, I, so I do genitourinary oncology. That's my area of specialty since coming to the FDA. And that means uh, kidney, prostate, and bladder cancer. So in each of those, there are a lot of evolving questions. Like I said, we're, we're always learning new things and thinking about new things and evolving ways of designing clinical trials to give us the answers that we're looking for. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll gather a number of experts in the field and sit down in a formal workshop setting and discuss issues. So that requires a lot of planning. And I do a lot of that as well. And then I give a lot of talks. I uh, give a lot of talks at conferences, at uh other workshops and, and um, similar settings for advocacy um, meetings for patient advocates to discuss uh, various clinical trial issues with them as well. And um, so tomorrow I have a talk um, that I'm giving also for a, a clinical trial planning meeting. So, you know, I'm making my slides, I'm thinking about what I want to say. And then um, sometimes I'll also meet with. Um, my statisticians and my clinical colleagues about some of our own research within the FDA from the data that we get from drug companies. So within the course of a day, I can be doing all of that. And that's why I find it so much fun.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, definitely sounds fun. Very busy. Um, yeah, it keeps me on my toes. I mean, I, yeah. I should never
2: use the word fun when, when I talk about um, oncology research. That That's not the fun part because there you know there are a lot of patients who've suffered a lot um, and you know, the, although there's a lot of hope, you know, i, I the, the fun part is is working with colleagues who are who are, you know, smart and and engaging and um, you know, really coming together um, to put your heads together about design and ideas and that kind of thing. but but certainly, you know, and and again, I'll again caveat this. I don't work with patients. so so, you know, it, this is a very different kind of setting than when I was training, where my day would look very different from, it do, where, from the way it does now.
1: Um, so that actually leads to our next question. Um, how did you come to work at the FDA?
2: Yeah, no, that's great. And um, I hope you're ready for another story, because this is a story as well. Uh, so I, for for me, the whole time I was in medical school, I mean, I went to Einstein. So being Shomer Shabbos was not something I had to think about at all. But when it came to um, residency and fellowship, I really had to choose um, settings where I could pursue a Shomer Shabbos, both internal medicine um, residency and then a Shomer Shabbos fellowship at the University of Maryland. But in my last year of fellowship, when it come, came time to applying for jobs. I was really stuck. I'm like, what am I going to do? Which job am I going to be able to figure out how to keep Shabbos? Um, y- you know, because like if you're in a practice with four people, you're expected to cover one every four weekends. And, you know, whether or not you can get a or to do that is, is, is one thing, but I didn't want to have to be thinking about that for the rest of my life. So I was looking at jobs that might allow me to, you know, keep Shabbos. That was one of the things I was looking for. And I came across an ad for a position at the FDA um, in the oncology office. And I sent an email to the person who was the recruiter for that job, and I didn't hear back from him. So I went on to take a job at the University of Maryland um, doing solid tumor there. And it happened to be that there were so many people on staff that covering weekends was much less of an issue than in other you know, sort of smaller private practices. But... Um, Uh, And I was there, you know, I knew it wouldn't be my permanent home. I was definitely looking for other opportunities all throughout the four years that I was there. But what happened with the FDA job was that three years, literally three years after I applied for the job and sent that email, I got an email back. I think there was some kind of hiring freeze when I sent that email, so it never really got any attention. But three years later, he found it in his inbox and he he wrote to me, are you still interested in this job? Um, Oh, it's incredible. I know it was so basher. It was a perfect time to transfer. And it really was good to have a few years under my belt as an attending, uh, which, you know, had I gotten the job straight out of fellowship, I never would have had. So, you know, Baruch Hashem, it really worked out well and the timing was perfect like i really i remember when he sent me that in, i was i was like are you kidding me but it it was it really worked out well so that's how i ended up working at the fda and i you know i quickly realized that the work life balance was going to be really good and you know no weekends and all of that and everybody there seemed so happy they were just like happy, enthusiastic, collaborative people. And it's actually true. It was my impression during the interview when I interviewed there. And it's just such a great place to work. It's not really something that would have been on my radar had I not been in the greater DC area because the FDA is actually located in Silver Spring. So, um, you know, most of the people that we hire end up being um, from you know, Hopkins, University of Maryland, or or one of the uh, Washington, D.C. hospitals. Um, So I don't know. It's just it sort of fell into my lap in that way. Um, But it's really the best fit for me that I could have imagined.
1: That's an incredible story. And it's like, yeah, and part of, you know, being in the Jewish community, um, managing Shomer Shabbos uh, with being a doctor is, you know, always, always a a ongoing discussion. So it's great that you found the position that allows you to do both.
2: Yeah, I'm very, very grateful for that. It really, it really is nice not to ever have to think about it.
1: And in terms of the positive um, environment, I am in downstate, I have been very fortunate, I think, to have awesome classmates, um, and awesome faculty there. And now in residency, um, the residency interview trail, this is also something my next job, I guess, in residency, um, a big thing is, um, are the people around me going to be supportive and nice to work with? So I think that is a really big contributor to thriving.
2: Oh, 100%. And I I hope you find it going forward. Because, you know, residency, you do spend a lot of time with people. And, you know, the 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 understanding and collaboration and all of that and flexibility is key. So um, I'm glad you found it to date and I'm hopeful that you'll find it going forward as well.
1: Thank you. Uh, So our next question, can you tell us about the process of cancer drug approval at the FDA?
2: Yeah, so, you know, it's really long. It can be a long process um, between when a drug is first used in a, you know, first first in human trial, um, and when that drug gets approved, I, I think that's somewhat beyond the scope of our discussion today to talk about all of the ins and outs. But um, I will say that we're involved right from the outset, like you know, even before a drug goes into the first patient. You know, we we, we do this all the time. We review the, the animal data and and all of the supporting data that gets a company ready to try a drug in a human being for the first time. And we're involved in that process and the process of doing the phase one trials and and later trials where they, you know, phase one trials are very early human studies where, you know, only a few patients get the drug in a very controlled way. And then once there's a signal that, that a drug works well, you know, it's taken on into later phase Trials and you know eventually goes into usually what's called a phase three trial, where um, the drug is tested to see how safe and effective it is in a larger number of patients. Um, and you know, as um, as a medical oncologist at the FDA, we're really involved in that whole process and overseeing um, the drug from the time it's in early clinical trials till the time it's in late stage development. And once a trial has um, shown that the drug appears to be effective and safe, then the company will submit the information to us and we'll review it and decide if it actually merits um, approval and if, we, if the company can start marketing that drug to the U.S. public. Um, so sort of that's in a nutshell um, how we uh, review and approve drugs at the FDA.
1: Wow, this is something totally new to me, so it's really interesting.
2: Yes, it's new to a lot of people. We actually have um I have radiology colleagues also, and they review you know radi- radioactive isotopes used for tracers. Um, they review devices. It, there's all sorts of review that goes on um, to make sure that you know what's marketed um, for use in medicine. Is, you, is basically doing what it's supposed to do and doing it safely and effectively. So yes, there are radiology counterparts of mine in the FDA too, and I talk to them a lot. Can you tell
1: us more about your research focuses? Sure.
2: I would say that when I publish, I usually am publishing about one of two topics, although there can be others, but I think that the two main topics... So I had mentioned that we've planned a lot of workshops in collaboration with outside academic experts, where we talk about trial design issues um, in kidney, prostate, and bladder cancer. So a lot of what I publish has to do with that, um, you know, workshop summaries and takeaways from those discussions. Um, so I so that's one area of of I don't know if you could say research, but one area of focus uh, that I write about and publish about. And the other, and this was something I really found interesting when I interviewed at the FDA, and it's absolutely come to fruition. When drug companies submit their data for review when their drug is going to hit the market, there's a lot of patient level data there. So, you know, you can find out. Basically, uh, you know, a lot of information about how a patient did on it's all anonymized. So, you know, obviously you have no idea who these people are. um, But there's a lot of very useful um, data that comes in that help you get a a really good window into how the drug uh, works in the application. But then Once you have several applications, you can do what's called a pooled analysis, where you take data from several clinical trials that are similar, and then you're in the position of answering a question that no one else can really answer because no one else has the data from all those different trials, and no one else can look at the data in a way that you can at the FDA. So I'll give you an example. We published um, an article in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, which is uh, probably considered um, the premier oncology journal um, for 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 these types for this type of research. Although obviously there are several others, but the analysis we did talked about um, how patients do with immunotherapy. So immunotherapy is. Um, a, a very new way of treating cancer, which uses the power of the patient's immune system to fight cancer rather than you know chemotherapy, which was a very different way of treating cancer or radiation therapy. Immunotherapy tries to get the body to turn on the immune system to fight cancer. So one of the things we looked at was a lot of times side effects from immunotherapy mean that the body's immune system can be turned on um, in a way that fights itself in sort of an autoimmune way. So, you know, patients can get thyroiditis where their thyroid starts um, being inflamed and, and acting up, or they can get um, dermatitis where, where um, their immune system turns on their skin and, and all of those kinds of side effects. So we had a question about whether patients who have mild immune-related side effects actually do better in terms of cancer control? And a lot of people have been looking at that kind of question on a trial level or maybe in their own cancer center or a couple of cancer centers together where they can pool patient data. But we had access to seven clinical trials in in the analysis that I'm talking about that were all done in bladder cancer, but they were all done by different companies. So we looked at the data specifically to answer this question. And we actually found out um, that it appeared in this exploratory analysis that patients who had side effects related to immunotherapy actually appeared to do better in terms of cancer control related to the immunotherapy. Um, So that's the kind of analysis that we do a lot um, with pooled data. And it enables us to answer questions that Very few others are in the position to answer. I would say almost no one else is in the position to answer. So that's the kind of other um, research that
1: I have been involved in publishing a lot. That's incredible. Like in the FDA that you're able to have that access, like you're saying, and that impact um, as a result. Uh, The immunotherapy is fascinating for me. The, what I had, like the reference, I guess I had known um, to this was treatment of melanoma with it and then um, patients developing vitiligo. So um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I guess like, you know, maybe like a little bit of that autoimmune attack is, is uh, beneficial um, in, in oh, the greater scheme. Sure.
2: It does appear to be that way. You know, it's similar to patients who have a bone marrow transplant. Um, where a little bit of graph versus um, graph versus leukemia effect, as we call it, you know, where there's a little bit you want that um, effect against the cancer um, itself from the bone marrow transplant. well I mean that's a whole other topic. but yeah, it, it, it does seem that unlike chemotherapy where toxicity is like completely, you know not a hundred percent bad, but there's no, um, correlation between toxicity and outcome. Here, it seems that a little bit of toxicity might actually be a helpful sign. Of course, there are patients with devastating toxicities, and you know I don't want to discount that. But um, sort of low-grade toxicity, which can be um, fairly well controlled with steroids and all that, might not be the worst thing in terms of cancer control. So that was mm-hmm. one of you know that's just something that we looked at, but yeah, it, it's a fascinating, I mean, immunotherapy has really completely changed how we treat cancer patients. And it's it's uh, such a big breakthrough and it's something that we are, you know, that um, the implications of the sea change in, in treating patients um, is something that we deal with every day in what I do, so.
1: So lots of hope for the future. Um, And that actually brings me to my next question. Um, In your article for Mishpacha, you address the misconception that there are no victories or hopeful days in your field. Can you share some of your hopes for the future and the advances you have seen? Yeah, thank you. I mean,
2: I did write an article where, you know, I say that people ask me, you know, what I do for a living and I say medicine and they're like, well, what kind of medicine? And, you know, if it's at a, party or a simcha and I say oncology, it kind of stops the conversation. But the truth is that, you know, oncology, yes, it can be a field with devastating losses. And I feel like um, the fact that I'm not in the clinic day every day is helpful in terms of dealing with that. But the hope in this field is unimaginable. And you know, our goal is to bring that to every single patient and so that every patient with a diagnosis of cancer um, feels that hope and has those treatment options. But you know, I, since I went into medicine and, and, and since I've become a mother, I really don't read much. But if there's one book that I've read that I think would be really interesting for anyone um, who wants to read more about this field and how it's evolved, is a book called The Emperor of All Maladies by by Siddhartha Mukherjee, and I may be uh, mispronouncing his first name. But it was a really eye-opening read that sort of um, brought home a lot of the things that I thought I knew about oncology and how the field evolved. And there's actually um, a documentary that was based on the book that even brings it home a little further into the modern era and how uh, you know some of our very recent drugs are transforming um the journeys of cancer patients. And, you know, I, I say the people who went, went into this field early on, those early pediatric oncologists, you know, the Sydney Farbers who were the first to use chemotherapy in children. I mean, they were heroes. I, I don't know how you can, and those patients, of course, were heroes. I don't know how you could have been an oncologist back in those days when the outcomes were just so much more devastating. But now we have so many tools in our arsenal. We have so many therapies. We have good ways of controlling side effects. And it's become a very different field than it was you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And yeah, I would definitely say that even in the days when I was sitting in the clinic and practicing oncology, the victories far outweighed um, the the harder days. And that's what you come away with, um, you know, in your day-to-day practice are are the people you help, are the people whose tumors um, you've helped control, whose lives you've improved. And those really do outweigh the the harder days, which are definitely there. Um, But, you know, I think the field is evolving in a really good way and hopefully we can continue bringing that hope to everybody who's, who needs it.
1: Yeah, I think it's incredible that there are literally patients that are waiting for your studies to come out and you can really change their their life. Um, so it's amazing that you're making that in- impact. Um, so I think you spoke to this already, uh, focusing on the positives, I guess, and um you know, the hope, um, and you're saying like the, you know, the good days really do outweigh the bad, but, um, how do you cope with the emotional aspects of your profession on, I guess, the not so great days?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's really hard. Um, it's, I mean, I guess you could say one of the ways you cope is what I did, which is to leave the clinic altogether, but that's actually not why I left. It's not because of the, the, um, the difficult patient interactions, um, you know, for me, it was more about a lifestyle and 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 research interest and and professional interest. But the side effect, I guess, is that I really don't have that, um, you know, devastating sort of interaction anymore. And and it's really hard. And there's a lot of burnout. Um, you know, I think you concentrate on what you can do to help a patient, and ultimately, it really helps to realize that. The patient being sick is not something that anyone caused. It's just the reality. So any health that you can provide is a bonus. I think to me, the most devastating losses are when, you know, a patient dies from treatment related toxicity. And that definitely happens. The, 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 the tools that we have in our arsenal. I, I once, I remember hearing um, that Hashem is a rofe finam. Hashem can give cures that have no side effects. But everyone else, you know, Tov larofim lo like Tov meh harofim I'm sorry if I'm if I'm misquoting, but we, you know, when you treat someone and they don't do well because of the side effects of the treatments, those to me are the most devastating um, types of um, patient outcomes, and those are the ones that I really, really remember. Um, even though you know it's 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 going to happen, um, but. You know, I think ultimately reframing and, and realizing that your job, you know, it, it's humbling, but you have to remember, it's not you who's in charge. You're doing your best with the the tools that you have um, to treat people. And, um, you know, ultimately, you know, it, it's not all in your control. So you, you try to be a, a a help and a beacon. And then when things don't work out, it's really hard. It really is. I still remember my patients who passed away um, again, these days, I, I don't really have any face-to-face. So, uh, you know, but uh, I, I do remember them. I'm thinking of them now. One of them I wrote about in Mishpacha. He said, Dr. Weinstock, you're gonna see me riding a motorcycle down the highway. And every time you see a motorcycle riding down the highway, you're gonna think of me. And I still do. He was one of the veterans and um, he told yeah. me that.
1: Wow. Well. Yeah, but I, I mean I think it's it's true what you say that you you know as doctors we just do our best for our patients. Um and we're human too. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's
2: hopefully that that's helpful um to, to think about.
1: Um all right, so our next question, um, a little lighter note. What may, motivated you to join the first Joma Board of Directors, and can you tell us a bit about its inception?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. So, I'll say, you know, social media sometimes gets a bad rap, but in this case, I would say this is like the best possible outcome of social media interactions. So, let's um rewind about I don't know, seven. Or eight years ago, um, when there was this Facebook group called From Female Physicians, started by um, Dr. Sherry Orzel. And it was a forum where From Women in Medicine could connect. And it was really amazing because when I was in Einstein, I was surrounded by From Women in Medicine. But that was the last time that ever happened. I graduated in 2005 and I moved on. And I'm part of a very broad community where what I'm doing is the vast minority. And I really have very few people doing what I do who can understand me. So when we all found each other on from female physicians, like that was just huge. And then I remember one day, um, this pre-med, it, it, was, it was incredible. She was a pre-med at the time. Um, Eliana Fine um, posted and she said, I'm thinking of starting an organization for from women in medicine. Is anyone else interested? And I reached out to Eliana. I I remember I was on my treadmill when she called me and it was, I I tend to run on my treadmill like 1130 at night. So I remember uh, this conversation where she had this vision of an organization for firm women in medicine. And I have to admit, I could not get over her ambition and how she even had the ability to think so broadly at that stage in her career, which was so early. But Um, you know, it sounded like a really good idea. And, you know, it really mushroomed from there. Um, You know, she got um, Dr. Mimi Newell on board and the original board of directors. And uh, they had a vision and they had a plan in their minds. I remember just think like being blown away, but there was such a need for it that immediately, you know, women showed up at the, um, at the symposium and, and we just like, there are other people like me in the world and it's great. And it's, it's so great to talk to you guys and you understand me and you get me. So, um, that was kind of how it started <laughs> long story, but, uh, it was really a breath of fresh air to, to find each other.
1: And, um, it's been great. It's really been a ride. So I call actually, I, I know they're from female physicians. Um, Facebook group that you're talking about. But yeah, I feel the same way about Joma. I also feel like I don't, I didn't know too many people um, like that I can relate to in my community who took a similar path. Um, And I, this was like something I couldn't necessarily talk to talk about with just like any, you know, one of my medical school um, pre-med, like my, in my pre-med class. Uh, So I found Joma more recently and I think it's wonderful to be able to relate to people who had a similar background as me. We have that understanding um, because we went to similar type of schools and we're pursuing medicine. Uh, It's really it's been amazing. I really think it's such a great
2: resource, and I wish I had it when I was in your shoes because there was a while where I was considering applying for radiation oncology and like one of the things I wanted to know was how does it work when someone's pregnant and they're a radiation oncology resident, but no one I knew in radiation oncology at the time was a woman. Like they were so nice. And I did a ton of rotations and I knew a lot, but like, I just, I didn't know whom to have that conversation with. And now I would. And, you know, knowing a surgeon who's a woman who's from like, how does it work? Like, is it really possible to do this given, you know, our lifestyle concerns, et cetera. So I think the fact that this has um, grown into what it is now is amazing and use it as a resource. There are tons of people who really want to help you um, and and anyone in your shoes. So definitely take advantage.
1: Yeah, thank you for starting it. So uh, our next question, if you could go back in time, given the experience and perspective you have now, is there anything you'd want to have done differently?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, Really interesting question. Um, I think for me, once I decided to switch gears and pursue a professional career that required a lot of years of schooling, I was in a rush to get there. So I went to the University of Toronto, which is a, has a four-year undergrad program. And I figured out that I could finish it in two years. And I put my head down and I had a crazy course load. And I also had to do um, extracurriculars and take the MCATs. And I had to put together a fantastic CV with research experience, et cetera. And I did it in two years. And On the one hand, you know, I got into medical school at the end of the two years and I came away with a great feeling of accomplishment. On the other hand, I look back, like, what was the rush? It would have been so nice to take my time and explore interesting classes in college and maybe travel a little bit more and relax, (laughs) you know, just let the process happen. You know, I think as a from woman coming from my circles, there was a lot of pressure to get it under my belt. And the fact that I was going to be graduating at 27 and then starting a six-year course of training was like huge for me. It seemed like Mount Everest. But the truth is, you know, the the time is going to pass regardless. And and you're going to be 27 or 32 or however age you are. And if you finish your training a year later. Nothing's gonna happen, like really not. It's hard to kind of have that in mind when you're starting, but I wish I had a little bit more, um, I guess uh, of a relaxed approach around college and 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 those years because in the end, you know, I graduated when I was supposed to, and that was great and and I don't really have regrets, but it would have been nice to take a little more time to To look around and smell the roses, I guess, in college.
1: Yeah, I hear that. Enjoying the journey. Um, oh, for so sure. The, but also, like uh, your your um, your comment on, like, you know, you're going to be 27 either way, kind of like speaks to me. Just uh, like looking back when I was making the decision, even to go to medical school, and it's it really seems like forever. But yeah, my mom is like to me. She basically said this: like you're you're going to get to 27 either way um so it's like you you might as well be happy when you're there and have no regrets oh 100
2: percent. yeah and and you know it's such a great journey for the right person I remember someone telling me um and I'll name her um Dr. Nessia Jacobs she was someone who was in U of T um with me University of Toronto she was in medical school at the time and I was agonizing over whether I should really go ahead with this and she's like kind of I wake up every morning and I look in the mirror and I'm thrilled with what I'm doing. And I'm thrilled with myself. And you want to do that. You want a job where that's going to be what you do every day. And after I heard that, I'm like, okay, it's a no brainer. Like this is just my calling and you know, whether it takes an extra year to get there or not, you'll get there. If that's something you really want to do. Yeah. Good luck.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, So our last question, what advice would you like to leave the pre-med and medical students listening to this podcast with?
2: Really good question. Um, I think if I could distill it down to one thing, uh, there's a quote that comes to mind, and that's, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. And I think it's um, attributed to, to Norman Peel, but really keeping your eye on the prize. There are a lot of distractions and they're really, really good distractions and you should be distracted. There there's, if you're single there there's dating and there's friends and there's um, family yeah. and in like, you know, children and all of that. But As long as you keep your eye on where you want to be, you know, even if you don't become the, you know, chief of medicine or whatever you you're thinking about, you're going to go places and it's going to make you really happy and really fulfilled in all your other roles. And to me, that is just the key to everything um, in my life. Just the ability to, to think big and to use my potential and, and the things that make me happy um, to bring hopefully good to the world and good to, you know, well, not my patients anymore, really, but um, to my colleagues and, and to patients in a broader sense who are enrolled on clinical trials, like it gets me going every day. And I think keeping your eye on the prize, even at times when it seems challenging, will really take you far. Um, and, you know, Cheryl Sandberg, I, I never read her book, but I know she has a concept of women sometimes step back and because of the other things going on in their lives, don't necessarily take um, leadership opportunities or leadership roles and maybe think that they can resume them, you know, 20 years down the line when they have more time. Um, so, you know, I, and she urges people not to um, refuse or not to pursue those opportunities. And I've really tried to think about that. And I try to do as much as I can um, in a way that works. Um, and then, you know, uh, my job at the FDA is a perfect example. It, it, it seemed to work, but be a way where I could be here. It, so the, the truth is we've been at home working remotely since the pandemic started. So I'm here when my kids leave in the morning. I'm here when they come back from school and I go to all the homish plays and all that. So if there's a way you can pursue your goals, but still, you know, make time for your priorities, that's great, but don't put your goals aside um, completely um, and, and just keep, keep your eye on the prize. And I, th- I think, you know, hopefully that'll really work out for, for a lot of people.
1: Thank you so much. It was so lovely speaking with you. I love hearing your passion um. we also have this like really nice, calming way about you. <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's really pleasant to speak with you.
2: You're very kind and thank you for uh, choosing me. I know my oncology career may not be the most typical, but it's really worked for me. And I'm really, really um, happy with what I do. As as I've said many times, I also want to invite anybody who's interested in medicine in, who's interested in medicine um, coming from a Basiaco background, which may not be so common or interested in oncology or in jobs at the FDA to reach out to me. And um, my email is hellohana@hotmail.com at hotmail.com. You're welcome to, uh, to reach out to me. Um, you can reach out to me through Joma too. And I'm always happy to, uh, to talk to anyone.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J O W M A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.